0: you have a Bible, we'll be in First Samuel chapter 28 today. We're carrying on with our series. We're getting near the end of the first book. We'll be taking a break through Advent and Christmas, and then we'll be starting with Second Samuel in January. So we're sort of speeding up here at the end, but we'll be looking at chapter 28. It says there, if, uh, if you have a Bible that has subtitles says the medium of Endor, sometimes the witch of Endor. I'm going to use an even weirder word. I'm going to say the ghost wife of Endor, uh, given that in Hebrew, if you translate it, that's actually what it means. The ghost wife of Endor. No, this is not a Tolkien or Star Wars thing here. This is, this is legit in the Bible. So before we look at this very mysterious story, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness for the, the ministry of Samuel And David and Saul and the authors of this book, I pray, Lord God, that you would open it to us now. It's very mysterious, very strange, very hard to apply to ourselves. Uh, Sometimes um, your word, Lord, just demonstrates how different you are from us, how different your culture and um, your vision of the Christian life. I pray, Lord God, that as we consider what's here, that we would not only understand it, but understand you and understand ourselves and our circumstances better. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. So I'm going to just jump in, but I'm going to actually jump in by going back to the beginning of chapter 25 for a moment. In the beginning of chapter 25, verse 1, we, there was a, a verse I actually skipped. It says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his, in his house at Ramah. Now it's, it, it seems strange that they would bury him under, under the floorboards of his own house, uh, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing he would deserve. But the reason that they did that, the reason they would do that with certain characters in, in the Old Testament is because they did not want people to venerate them. Um, there's a reason we don't know where David's tomb is. There's a reason we don't know where Moses is buried. There's a reason we don't know where Samuel is buried. Be- and, and as we're going to see, <laughs> like the, the reason that he's buried in this nondescript place is actually proven in the story. Uh, pe- people want to hear from him. People want to worship him. People want to... Um, commune with him even though he is gone. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, we're going to go look at verse, 30, uh, verse 3 through 5. Again, I'm skipping some verses there. I'm putting them off till next week, but Samuel has already died. He died several chapters ago. And we take the story up in First Samuel chapter 28 verses 3 through 5. It says, "Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Galoa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly." Now, the note about Samuel's death is a flashback. But it's important to remember that he's gone as the story unfolds. Saul's ban on the necromancer, necromancers might also seem like a bit of an odd detail. But it's actually in an instance where Saul is obeying the law of Moses. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 through 12, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Now, the fact that Saul has banned these people from the land seems like an example of his being faithful. But what we're going to see is that it's just show. It's just show. The Philistines' movements, also another odd detail, it seems, emboldened by, most likely by David's raids on Israel. Remember, David is now living amongst the Philistines. He's now raiding the land of Israel. This is, it has emboldened the Philistines. They have now invaded. And, and all of these things together, the death of Samuel, the, the absence of necromancers, the invasion of the Philistines, seem like a bunch of random things to throw together. So what is going on? What do all of these things have to do with one another? Now, as the episode is opening here, battle lines are being drawn. Saul has no heart for it, though. He had one job, right? The reason they wanted a king was so that they could be led in the field like the other nations, and now here they are being invaded by the Philistines, and he has no heart for it. So even, not, even, not only has he failed By the standards of God for a king in Israel, he's utterly failed even the purpose that Israel wanted a king in the first place. He's failed on every conceivable level here. Philistia has invaded the land. They've marched some 10 or 15 miles southwest to the Sea of Galilee, seeking to control the strategically important Valley of Jezreel, Cutting east-west across northern Israel, Philistia would cut off the the northern tribes from the southern tribes, interrupt communications, interrupt supply lines, and be in an actually pretty good position to attack the the entire land. From this particular valley, not only is Israel split in two, but the the, uh, Philistines will be able to attack both north and south anywhere they want. They just travel up and down this valley, and they have access to the whole land. What's interesting is this is a bit of a foreshadow of what eventually happens. There's going to be a bunch of foreshadowing here about what happens to the to the Israelite kings because we know later that the kingdom is actually divided in two. So the Philistines here are foreshadowing what is going to happen to the kingdom of Israel. It is going to be split in half, but it's going to be done from within, not from without. To prevent the Philistines from gaining this advantage, Saul sends his his army to Gilboa, blocking their way. A fight is imminent, and therefore he is terrified. Fear is one of the most important themes of the whole chapter. Saul is afraid in verse 5. The witch he consults is frightened when Samuel appears in verse 12. Saul assures her that she has, in fact, nothing. Fear, Saul himself admits that he's in distress, verse 15. When Samuel tells Saul that he would die, Saul becomes very afraid, verse 12. Terrified in verse 21. Saul's fear had been growing since his initial failures in chapter 13, and this is what is important. As as this story goes, most of us have probably never had anything to do with a necromancer, unless we're watching Harry Potter, of course. But how many of you guys have ever been gripped by fear? How many of you have ever had fear assailing you again and again and again? So right out of the gate, we see that this story is applicable to us right from the get-go. We all experience deep, Fear. We all are disheartened to the, to the struggle that lies before us. Saul's fear has been growing since back in chapter 13. When Goliath taunted Israel, Saul and his men were greatly afraid and dismayed, it says in uh, 17, verse 11. When Saul tried to kill David and failed, he began to fear David. It says twice in chapter 18. Now faced with another Philistine assault, Saul is fearful to the point of inaction. He stops. He sends his army. He doesn't attack. He doesn't retreat. He just puts his army in a camp, and he stops. He's completely incapacitated by fear. And what we see here is if fear is not repented of, if fear is not dealt with, if it's unholy fear, not the fear of the Lord, if it's human fear, fear of man, fear of circumstances, fear of failure, this kind of fear, if not dealt with, eventually becomes something that completely incapacitates us, disheartens us. And and eventually will lead us to idolatry. The repetition of fear and the intensification of the language of afraid to very afraid to then terrified shows the progression here. If you don't deal with it, it, you're not just going to be afraid. You're not just going to be very afraid. You're not going to just be terrified. You are going to be completely incapable of dealing with your circumstances. You will be so afraid, you will literally just lie down on the floor and that's it. This is further evidence that the Spirit of God has departed from Saul. Right? We've heard. It's been a while. But what the authors are trying to do is they're trying to remind us that the Spirit of God has actually departed from Saul. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear and power, God, God, God gave us the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What, what happens when you have the spirit of God? You are not afraid. You fear him, and you fear nothing else. What happens when you have... You don't fall back into slavery. And so when these things persist, what will happen is there will be a disconnect between you and God. There'll be a disconnect between you and his spirit. And, and this is why fear has to be dealt with. That's the message at the very get-go. If you do not deal with your fears in the right way, you will become like Saul. Now, the story takes a positive turn for a moment because in his fear, he turns to Yahweh. It says in 1 Samuel 28.6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. He turns to the Lord, and the Lord has nothing to say. Why? Why does God have nothing to say to Saul? Does it seem unfair? There's a growing movement of people who read and interpret this book, and it seems to be all the sympathy is on the side of Saul. <laughs> Poor Saul, Right? Who gave him the spirit? Who took the spirit away? Who's the one who's been blessing David this whole time? What's going on here? Poor Saul. But that is one of the things that the story wants to remind us of. Why is it that God refuses to answer Saul? There is a reason, and it's Saul's fault. And, and demonstrating the age in which we live, where personal responsibility is something that we really don't want to talk about, don't want to deal with, nobody wants to blame Saul for Saul's condition. And when you, when, when you read this, how, how do you interpret it? Is it, is it God's fault? Is, is, is the problem with God or is the problem with Saul? Now, what we see here for a moment is the first improper step, of course, is to ask direction from Yahweh. Yahweh, what am I going to do? I'm terrified. Saul consults all the normal means of guidance. But why don't they work? Dreams often come to kings. Solomon receives a dream. Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh, they're both kings. They receive dreams. They have to be interpreted. Dreaming is something specific that God uses to reveal himself to kings. Not for Saul, though. The Urim was a priestly method of revelation, since it was attached to the breastpiece of the garments, but see, he killed all of them. There's nobody with, who's going to come as a priest and consult with him and mediate for him. Why? Because he murdered them all. So how is this God's fault and not Saul's fault? right? Hey, Saul, there's a lot of reasons not to murder the priests. One of them is because if you murder them, then you will have no phone that is connected to the red phone in heaven directly to the Lord our God. right? There's the red phone on God's desk, but it, he cut the line because he, he literally cut down all of the prophets, or all the priests. He's deprived himself of mediation with God. Now, further, Urim means lights. And Saul's inability to get priestly guidance shows that he had been deprived of light. So just like way back in the beginning of the story for the Battle of Aphek, when the lampstand was taken away from Israel, you see in, in, in another sense the lampstand is taken away. The light has gone out in Israel. Now, no prophets could help because the chief prophet, Samuel, is dead. The lack of priestly guidance was Saul's own fault. He slaughtered them. The mediators of God's word are dead. Saul first became king. He was among the prophets, remember. He didn't need a prophet. He was a prophet. But since he refused to heed the word of the prophet Samuel, that ability to prophesy, that ability to receive the spirit, that ability to mediate between God and man has been taken away from him. Saul has thus employed in this verse the royal, the priestly, and the prophetic means of consulting with Yahweh, and all of them are closed to him through his own actions. He refused to listen to the prophet, he killed all the priests, and and he has proven himself to be a false king that deserves no dream from heaven. Nothing has worked. Now, at this point, this is where the story gets very interesting. Because once you try all the legitimate means and they don't work, what do, we, what do we tend to do at that point? We go with the uh, illegitimate means. <laughs> right? As soon as we, everything that we're supposed to do, okay, this is how we're supposed to communicate, this is how we're supposed to act, this is how we're supposed to obey, this is what we're supposed to do, this is what we're supposed to say, this is how we're supposed to, to conduct ourselves. None of it is working, and so what I'm going to do now is go the other way, the illegitimate way. First Samuel twenty eight seven. Then Saul said to his servants, "Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her." And his servant said to him, "Behold, there is a medium at Endor." Now, a thread throughout this story has been Saul's gradual descent into sorcery. It's something that he's done step by step, little step by little step by little step, until he's at a point now where he's literally going to a medium. Now, way back. He avoided God's revealed will at his coronation by hiding amongst the baggage. The legitimate means of God's communicating with him was offered to him at his coronation, and he refused it. God is speaking to me. I'm not listening. I'm going to go, and I'm going to hide amongst the baggage. Saul made an oath of fasting as a kind of talisman to attain military victory. It's not the kind of thing where they would fast before they go into battle like David did. He said, he vowed on behalf of everyone, we will not eat until we have victory. And he did it as a sort of arm-twisting way to get God on his side. And remember how that went, right? What ended up happening? It led to the people of Israel breaking the law, eating animals with the blood in them, and his attempted murder of his own son. (laughs) Then, to find out who to blame for that, he cast lots. Now, impatient for Samuel, remember, he offered unauthorized sacrifices. He's always trying to use the mechanisms for his own means. He's never using them properly. He's not using fasting properly. He's not using sacrifices properly. He's always going out on his own. He's ignoring the word directly given to him by God, and he's always trying to find his own way, his own way of understanding what's going on, his own way of controlling what's going on. Now, back in 1 Samuel 15.23, this is what Samuel had to say about Saul's behavior. This is quite a few chapters ago. This is chapter 15, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Divination is an attempt to discern those things that cannot be perceived by normal means. Divining is a function of the prophets. It's actually something that is that exists in the Bible. God tells us to do it. In Zechariah 10.2, it says, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. What, What the Bible never does is assume that necromancy and mediums are something that don't work. Right? We, we are actually, un, we, we struggle in a great deal of unbelief in this category. Because we're like, ah, sorcery isn't really a thing. That's like a bunch of stuff that they did back in the, right? There were no witches in Salem. It's impossible to have witches. Well, maybe there were witches in Salem. How do we know, right? <laughs> um, if you go back to Exodus in the scriptures, what happens? The, the court magicians are able to do the first three uh, um, curses that Moses is able to do. How did they do that? Moses throws a stick on the ground and becomes a snake. Well, it it happened because the the Lord, God, who controls all things, turned the stick into a snake and then back again. But how did the court magicians do it? It's never assumed in the Bible that these things are meaningless. What is always assumed about them is that they are wicked. The Bible takes it very, very seriously because it exists. Now, it says in Proverbs 16.10, An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin and judgment. Oracles are given directly, as we're going to see with Solomon. God speaks and uses and works through uh, the kings as a kind of diviner. He tells them what he wants them to do. He comes to them and says, listen, I'm a spirit, I'm, or through my spirit, I'm going to tell you how to build the temple, and I'm going to bring you into heaven, and I'm going to show you the temple in heaven, and then you're going to go back and have them build it the same way. So there's this mediation by spirits, and where Solomon goes actually into the upper heavens and sees the temple there. And moderns are like, no, 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 none of this stuff is actually real. So part of what this story does is it, it, it shows our unbelief, our unbelief in very basic elements of the scriptures. There's no such thing as magic. There's no such thing as sorcery. Necromancers can't exist. There's no such thing as a Ouija board. The reason I hate Ouija boards isn't because Ouija boards are stupid, but because if you use them, and you, right, there, there are plenty of fallen angels who will use a Ouija board to, to lead people astray. I, I, in high school, I knew a young man who was speaking to, to demons, and they lured him into uh, killing himself. And, and I know that he, and he used to come, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, the guy comes to me, and he talks to me. And you're like, <laughs> stop with the drugs. And it turns out he didn't do any drugs. Everyone thought he was doing drugs. And so here I was as an unbeliever. Part of what I didn't like as unbelief with the Christian worldview is that it didn't know how to deal with these kinds of things. Okay, We, 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 we accept the explanation that, that people who appear to be speaking to people out on the street, they just have some wires crossed. That's it. There's never anyone that they're actually talking to. It's simply that they just need pills. And so the, the whole biblical worldview is undermined by moderns, especially Christians, because we think all of this stuff is nonsense. There was a story I heard once of, um, of a missionary. Um, he told this story about a tribesman. So the, the plane lands uh, in the middle of nowhere. I think this was on one of the islands uh, off of South America. And there's this man kneeling there, and he sees the missionary get off the plane. And the spirit, who's his friend, is like, you've got to kill that guy. And he's like, Okay. Right? We'll we're just we're kill him. Well, later that man, who was given that order by the demon, is actually converted, and he would talk about the fact that there were spirits in this land. And, and it was really hard for him to get the Western Christians to believe him. But what, what does it mean when it says we fight against principalities and powers of the air? Is that true or isn't it? Are people accessing those or not? Are we struggling against flesh and blood? Now, we know that the Bible says that. Oh, we don't struggle against flesh and blood we struggle against principalities and powers of the air. And then you're like, well, what's a principality and power of the air? And all the modern Christians just stare. Uh, I don't know. It's definitely not a Ouija board because none of that really exists. Right? People don't actually talk to spirits. Now, <laughs> this is what I'm going to wait until the end, but I just want you guys thinking about this now. We don't do this, do we? right? I, I, if I actually came over to your house and went through your board games, I'm not going to find a Ouija board. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I'm assuming I won't. So then how, how in the world are we going to apply this to ourselves? Like, okay, Mike, I grant the fact that we, we don't, uh, we, we have a difficult time with the way that the Bible describes the world, that there are spirits that are evil that you can't access, that God doesn't want you to. Fine. But that is all in the past, right? That's all an uneducated age. That's all in the age back then where they used to believe in those kinds of things, you know, like the dark ages. How are we going to apply this to ourselves? Now, moving on for a moment, setting that aside, apart from God's designated mouthpiece, such as the prophets and some kings, divination is condemned. It's believed to be true. It's believed to, be, to exist, but it is Condemned. God's people are forbidden to use divination and enchantments as the pagan world does. Now, remember, it was asked, is Saul among the prophets? He would like to think so, but the divining spirit was taken away from him, so he can't turn within himself and do this now. He killed the prophets who used the Urim. God does not visit his dreams. Saul prostitutes the act of divination. Since I can't do it and I can't find anybody else who can do it who's legit, I'm going to go now and find a person who can do this for me who's not legit. What I find fascinating is even though he condemned all of this and said, none of this is allowed in my land, why is it that he's able to turn to his men and they all know exactly where to go? Right? This is, um, I was. <laughs> this is always really funny. Um, you know, my dad used to talk about stories when he was a policeman. And they're like, yeah, there's, you know, there's no gambling in this city. And you'd be like, oh, okay. And then later after work, you know, they'd be like, they go down to a place where they knew there was an illegal poker game. <laughs> and all the cops are like, yeah, we know where this stuff is. It's not that people don't know where this stuff is. It's just we keep it in the dark. So this kind of hypocrisy that exists in, 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 our, in our world today exists here. Why is it that something that's illegal, they all know exactly where it is, Right. <laughs> And, and, I mean, it, culturally, this is always how men are. Why is it that men in the field always seem to know where the whorehouses are, like on the front lines? First off, why, are the, why is there a whorehouse on the front lines? Well, because the men need something to do on their time off. And why is it that everybody, including the officers, who tell everyone not to do it, know where it is? Uh, we, we were just watching Band of Brothers, and there's a, there's a moment where, where that happens, where all the officers are like, oh, I have no idea where that is. And they're like, it's down there. It, it, it's shocking what we're willing to believe, right? We're told that things ought not to exist, and yet everybody knows where they are, and we just act like it. We act like they're not supposed to. We're acting like it doesn't really exist. I could get into the whole pornography thing, but I'll save that for another time. Saul's communication with the Lord has ended because he has refused to listen to him right? That's been the point up to this. He stopped listening to God, and so God has nothing to say to him, and now what he's going to do is he's going to try something that is illegal. He's been this way all along, though. All along, when he's trying to get information on David, he doesn't mind where the information comes from. Remember Dog the Edomite. Dog the Edomite, who shouldn't even be there serving Israel in the land, they ought to get rid of him, and yet Saul uses him as, as a means of communication to, to, to inform on and know what's going on with David. So there's a long history here of Saul using the, in, the incorrect form of communication, the wrong kind of informants. Having exhausted legitimate means for consulting Yahweh, he now seeks illegitimate ones. Now, through necromancy, necromancy was banned. His men know where it is. And I'm going to say this is why in Hebrew it's called a ghost wife. She's, you know, Some say it's a witch, some say necromancer, some say medium Ghost wife works because she's a woman Who helps a spirit communicate with people She's a helper of a spirit That's why they call her a ghost wife Because wives are supposed to be helpers of their husbands She is a helper of spirits, therefore she is a ghost wife This is where the phrase comes from Now, necromancy, again, in the ancient Hebrew world Was not conceived as hocus-pocus But as potentially efficacious technology In the realm of the spirits that's why it's banned. God doesn't want people in his land communicating with principalities and powers, with spirits outside of the land, bringing them into the midst of Israel. He doesn't want that. That's why he said don't do the things that the pagans do. Don't communicate with the spirits like the pagans do. Don't invite those kind, that kind of sorcery, those kinds of practices in. And so here Saul is in the heart of Israel and inviting wicked and evil spirits in. When Saul learned that there was a woman who had escaped his edict, oh, gee, I wonder how that happened, he went to Indor to consult her. Indor was in the tribal area of Manasseh, and the word can mean a spring of generations. And so what what it suggests is that it's a garden-like setting. right? And we know that the author keeps making this reference. David is in the garden, and he was tempted three times. David's in the garden. He's presented with a wife and a snake earlier with Abigail. And so now here, Saul is in his own garden. But, and now what he's being tempted with is a wife, a ghost wife. Is he going to listen to her, or is he going to listen to God? Right? So he's, it's an, an endemic struggle that he's in. He's in a garden that he shouldn't be in, and he's going to now consult with a woman who he shouldn't listen to. 1 Samuel 28, 8 through 10. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, and went he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. uh, Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Now, Saul's disguise is the penultimate instance of his running motif here of royal divestment. He, right, the, the clothes he's wearing demonstrate that he is, in fact, the king. This is why earlier, uh, in, in the tearing of the robe, it represented his throne being taken away from him. David cuts the, the hem of his garment, and, and in this way, he, it's the same thing. He's showing that his power is limited. Earlier, Saul had stripped himself naked in a mad fit of prophecy, Now, before learning of his death, he strips himself and his authority and goes in secret. He's taken off everything that that anyone would use to recognize him externally as the king. He's he's making the final judgment on himself. I'm no longer the king of Israel. I am disheartened to the point that I'm now going to go to a medium, a spirit uh, guide, and I'm going to, to attempt to get information about what's going on with me because God has rejected me. Saul's request is straightforward. Practice divination for me by contacting the dead. The woman's s- suspicion is immediate. She knows about government stings. She fears that she's being set up as another pagan bust. Right? This woman has clearly had some experience with law enforcement. She uses the word for entrapment and fears that Saul is some sort of undercover officer of the Necromancy Enforcement Agency. <laughs> Wait, you're just going to come right in here and ask me if I'm selling illegal drugs? Are you a cop? <laughs> She clearly has had some experience with trying to be outed in the past. And so she fears that he's, he's so straightforward. He comes with this entourage. She, she smells kind of a rat. But we can't miss the irony here. Saul swears the oath by Yahweh's life as he seeks help from a source that Yahweh has condemned. And I'm going to use a Jewish commentary from the Midrash. The Midrash is a Jewish commentary that's very ancient, and this is actually what the commentator had to say. Whom did Saul resemble at this moment? A woman who was with her lover and swears by the life of her husband. So he's in the throes of idolatry, and he's promising that he's going to protect the idolatrous woman by by invoking the name of Yahweh. And we remember from Proverbs 7, there's the woman who's trying to lure the man into her bedroom. She says, I went and I made my vows to God. I made my sacrifices to God, right? She played the whore with God before she played the whore with man. And so here we have Saul, this is crystal clear evidence that Saul has gone away from the Lord. He's abandoned the Lord. He doesn't even know what the name of the Lord is supposed to be used for. He's using it in vain. He's using it in promising to a woman he ought not to be conducting any business with as he's conducting business with her. He, is, he has whored himself with idolatry. He has whored himself with the world. He has departed from the Lord. It's not the Lord that has departed from him. 1 Samuel 28, 11 through 14. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, how then does one explain this piece of necromancy? Why would God allow this thing? Okay, Now, just the cosmology of the whole thing, there is a kingdom of the dead. It's called Hades. Um, in, in, In Hebrew, it's Sheol. There's a place where the dead go. Now, who's the king of this place? Who is the king of this kingdom? Well God is. God says, Don't use divination, don't do it. And yet here is somebody using divination. Why would he allow the spirit of Samuel to come back from the dead? Now this is this is another this is a test. This is a test of our view of scripture. Is this just the story? This is is what recently at our CREC meeting last week, we're going to open the word of God, we're going to tell you what the word of God means, we're going to tell the world what the word of God means, and we're going to take all the laughter that comes. This is not just a story. And I think all of us need to sit down and seriously consider how we've hoarded ourselves with the modern paradigm. Here is Saul, the king of Israel, sitting down talking to the ghost of a dead man. That's what the scripture is telling us. And it's not just the story, it really happened. Now, what in your current modern paradigm is that challenging? Why would God allow such a thing? Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow false religions? Why does God allow darkness and wickedness in the world? That's a that's a rhetorical question. I'm not going to answer it for you. It 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 shocks us that he allows such a thing at such time. Right? Why why is he letting right he's giving Saul just enough rope to hang himself? Yahweh's word is spoken. Remember remember the prophet Balaam? Remember the prophet Balaam who was hired to come and curse Israel? And he came, and even though he was a false prophet, God used him to proclaim something that was true. And what we have here is that God wants to communicate with Saul, and he wants Saul to see how far he's fallen in, in his attempt to communicate with the Lord. And so God is going to allow this because he really wants to get a word through to him, but he also wants him to see how far from grace he's fallen. The author is very discreet, as they usually are in instances like this. They don't tell us how it works. And I'm very grateful they don't, because how how quickly would some of us be in our desperation and in our fear, be like, well, it worked for him, maybe it'll work for me. So I, I appreciate the fact that they don't actually tell us how. But the ghost wife gets more than she's expecting. Usually the way that this would work is there'd be this sort of wispy little spirit that murmurs and that she would have to listen very carefully to that nobody else could hear, and then she would explain what the murmuring, whispering voice says. But instead of that, what comes up out of the ground? Something that looks like God. And she uses the word Elohim, which is a plural and can refer variously to judges, authorities, and God. It's the word gods. Gods come up out of the ground. And she's terrified because it's not the whispering, right? The Lord God has allowed not just some whispering voice to come, but, in, but Samuel himself to come up out of, out of the earth, whatever that means, to appear as himself. And, and what we see is what we look like in the afterlife, right? I've said this before. I got it from C.S. Lewis. We are all on our way to either becoming a horror that would terrify us or something that if we saw it now, we would want to worship it. And this proves it. He comes up out of the ground, and you can see that whatever his experience is in the afterlife, it makes him look to people on earth like a god. And, and what clues us in as to who and, right, why all of a sudden it's just an old man wearing a robe? Well, the robe is what tells us who he is. Because you go all the way back to the beginning in chapter 2, verse 19, Hannah was bringing a robe to Samuel every year. Throughout the book, they keep referring to Samuel's robes because it's his robe of authority. And so here he is, in, invested still with his authority as a prophet, even though he's dead. Saul prostrates himself before Samuel as if he is before the Lord because he, he can't discern the difference between the real God and false gods even though he knew Samuel, right? Anywhere else in the Bible, Paul, the apostles do this, John does it, they're like, people fall down to worship him and they're like, whoa, don't worship me, I'm just a man. The angels do the same thing. And here Saul is prostrating himself and worshiping Samuel as if he is a god. At the beginning of the story, Eli and Samuel encountered the pristine and direct word of God. Remember, God spoke to Samuel. He said, Samuel. Samuel said, here I am. And he spoke to him directly. That's the beginning of the book. At the end of the book, things have gotten so bad. Kingship has wrought its idolatrous effect upon Israel like God knew it would. That now Samuel and Saul are implicated in a prophetic word clothed in divination. This is what the throne of Israel will bring to you. This is what happens when you put your faith in men, right? What did Israel say? Give us a king like the nations. God was like, okay, right? I mean, I used to talk to you guys directly, but now I guess we'll have the king and my dead prophet talk to one another in some necromancer's house. That seems legit. That seems much better. Good job, Israel. You're welcome. And, and what the whole story is telling us is what what the best we can do is what, right? When we reject God, when we want... Things on this earth that we can see, right? They, they were afraid in battle. They wanted a king that would lead them in battle. Just like in the old times, they made golden calves and they called it Yahweh. This idolatry is something that people always do. And now Saul is terrified and he's doing the same thing. And, and if you put your faith in men, this is what you're going to get every time. When we reject God, when we stop listening to him, this is the kind of tawdry nonsense that we fall into. Wicked and evil nonsense. Now, this is what Samuel has to say, verses 15 to 19. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. God has turned away from me, answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? I like this. Um, Samuel says, why have you disturbed me? As if he's been called from something fun, right? <laughs> he's, he's, in the inner, he's in the inner kingdom of the dead having a party, and somebody's called him to the front door to answer a question. He's like, why, why are you disturbing my fun? What are you doing? And then the sad, some of the saddest words in all of scripture are uttered. In verse 15, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. God has turned away from me and answers me no more. You can hear how desperate he is. You can hear how broken he is. And, and look at the circumstances now in which he is standing before Samuel. I am utter, utterly bereft of guidance. Now, all along, has, has Saul been worried about what? The guidance or the guide? He wants a word from the Lord, not the Lord. He wants guidance from the Lord, not the Lord. He wants the comfort of the Lord, not the, the comforter. He wants the gifts of the gift giver, not the gift giver himself. How did he end up here? He's gotten exactly what, he's want, what he always wanted. Not the giver of good things, not the Lord himself, but all of the things that come along with me being associated with him in the first place. He wants guidance, not the guide. And my question to you is, do you want guidance or do you want the guide? Everything that's going on right now, where people are literally thinking about moving to Tennessee, for goodness sakes. People are thinking about leaving jobs, leaving states, moving here, moving there. In the midst of all of this, do you want guidance or do you want the guide? Is it perhaps possible that we, like Saul, are right now, in our fear and in our trepidation, feel bereft of counsel bereft guidance, seeking and seeking and seeking and seeking more guidance, or are we seeking and seeking and seeking the guide? What would you rather have? Would you rather have absolute certainty about the next six months or Jesus Christ? That's why they pay me the dollars. Because at times, I myself don't know. Well, can't we just have a little guidance? I mean, a little? Like, there are people really starting to suffer now. It's not like, again, all last week we're at our, our pastor's meetings, and people are like, whoa, man, you're from Washington. Do you need a drink? I was like, yes, but I'm actually, <laughs> it, it's actually mostly up to this point just been annoying. It's getting serious now. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, it's really just kind of, I mean, you put this thing on to, so you can go to Costco and both buy the goods, and it's kind of annoying. But now people are like literally losing their jobs. And, and now, right now, do we feel bereft of guidance? And if so, is our response to seek and seek and seek more guidance or the guide? It, it's very clear. Samuel gets right, right down to the heart of it. You didn't listen. You didn't hear him. And he has nothing further to say to you. Right? I, 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 I'm, I'm a, as a parent, I have six kids. I've, this has happened. It gets to a point with some of my kids where I'm like, I have nothing further to say. You didn't listen the first ten times I said it. So now what I'm going to do is just discipline you. I have nothing further to say about this subject. And in my frustration, right, I just like, I'm done. I'm done talking. I'm going to just do now. Now, imagine how God feels, right? Here's God trying to talk to him this way. Talk to him through the prophets. Talk to him through dreams. Talk to him through the priests. Talk to him, talk to him, talk to him. And Saul's like, eh, what's he going to do eventually? He's going to stop trying to talk to him. He's like, you don't want to hear what I have to say, so I'm not going to say anything else further to you. And Saul feels it. He feels it in his heart. This is why he's disheartened. I am utterly bereft of guidance. God has turned his face from me. God has nothing to say to me. And we see in his turmoil what he digs in deeper and deeper and deeper is give me more guidance, give me more guidance, give me more guidance. And he just gets further and further and further away. And now he's talking to a ghost who's beckoning him down to Hades. This time tomorrow, my friend, Right, Just walk out that door. Just come towards me now. You and your sons, you're all going to come down and come to the party with me. He's literally being lured into Hades by, an, uh, by a ghost. This is where it's gotten him. Saul goes for guidance, and he gets a death sentence. You're going to die. Your kids are going to die. You are going to be with me this time tomorrow. Now, what we can see in this whole thing is the history of Israelites, the the history of the Israelite throne in miniature. The same false start and providential delay that embodied Saul's rule will clothe the throne of Israel itself. Not only does Eli and his sons die at the beginning of this book, but Saul and his sons die at the end of the book. And Israel is defeated by Philistia and goes into a kind of exile like the Israelites are going to after the, after the last king is killed. And so what you see is in miniature here. It starts with guys who are dying, a cursed household, which is what's going to happen to Solomon's sons. And it ends with a cursed household, which is what you see at the end of 2 Kings. You want, do you want a king like the nations? Here you go. In the the book of 1 Samuel, this first half of the Samuel Odyssey, this shows us what is going to happen when you put your faith in the kings of men. Now we have a last supper of sorts chapter 28, verse 20 through 25. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground filled with fear because of the words of Samuel and there was no strength in him for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had, fattened a calf, had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly killed it. She took flour, kneaded it, baked unleavened bread of it, put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. They rose and went out that night. Now doesn't that sound like the Last Supper? How did Adam do? In the garden, did Adam take food from a woman and listen and take advice from a woman and food out of a woman's hand and it led to the fall? And so now here is here, here's Saul. It's not funny, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Here is Saul literally taking the advice of, of this woman he ought not to listen to, taking food from her hand and falling just like Adam. And, and it says he goes out into the night and that's exactly what it says in John chapter 13 of Judas. Judas ate and then he went out into the darkness. Now, this is the end of all of us. If we, if we are left to our own devices, if we are left to our own wisdom, if we are left to our own strength, we are all of us going to sit down like Adam and like Saul, and we're going to take advice that we shouldn't listen to, and we're going to eat at a table that we ought not eat, and we're going to fall. But there is someone else who's gone out into the darkness ahead of us. Mark, chapter 15, verse 33 through 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, doesn't that sound an awful lot like what Saul said in verse 15? God has turned his, his face away from me and will not speak to me. And then he gets up from a table and goes out into the outer darkness. Now, you can either end up like Saul or you can end up turning to the Lord Jesus Christ who's gone out ahead into the darkness before you so that you don't have to. He has had the face of God turned from him so that you don't have to. You don't have to be Saul. You don't have to, in your fear and in your lack of guidance, turn to wickeder and wickeder devices to comfort yourselves and to give yourselves assurance. What you need to do is turn to Christ. Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness... Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. If you peer into the darkness, do you know what will be coming out at you from it is the face of the Lord Jesus, his countenance, which is like a sun, and you will see no shadow, you will see no darkness. Not because he gives you guidance, but because he is your guide. Come with me, follow me, and you will not know anything about going out into the outer darkness. They're purposely now, by the divining spirit that comes down from heaven. This story is filled with all kinds of of reality check details, but also the gospel itself. What happens to Saul is what happens to Adam, is what happens to all of us when we rely upon ourselves, our own wisdom, our own strength. When we like the guidance more than the guide, you're going to end up eating at, at night in the, in the darkness with a necromancer. Right? If you want the countenance of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want light in the midst of darkness, if you want a divine spirit so that you're never bereft of God's word, it says in John sixteen, John sixteen, when the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you want light? Do you want a divining spirit? Do you never want to be bereft of guidance? Now, and this is the trick. Now, Jesus' guidance is this. Follow me. Well, um, follow you. Follow you through losing my job. Following you, follow you what? Follow you to another state? Follow you to... I, I want more information than that. Can you give me more information? Can, can you make sure that I'm going to be comfortable and safe? Uh, yes. Uh, okay, well, I'm looking around, and all I'm seeing is darkness. I'm looking around, and all I'm seeing are the Philistines getting ready to fight... I'm I'm trying to, you know, divine what you're doing, and I can't figure it out, and, and all you want me to do is just look at you and follow you wherever you go? Yes. Now, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the guide, irregardless of the level of guidance you get? Right, do you, how much detailed guidance do you want him to give you? And if he doesn't give it to you, are you going to stop following him? And I'm going to say something now because, right, again, like, raise your hand if in the last two years, in the midst of all this chaos, you've gone to a necromancer. Okay, good. That's a good start. I'm proud of you. Okay, how many of you have turned to a divining spirit? Okay, good, good. Well, let's think about it this way. How many of you have gone and sat down at the internet and tried to bring up from the internet someone like Q who's going to tell you what's really going on? Right? How many of us, in our despair, in our uncertainty as to what's going on, turn to people like Lou Rockwell, Drudge, Matt Walsh, Joe Rogan, Right? We're, none of us ever seek a divining spirit who's going to give us guidance in the midst of all this darkness, right? Now, I want to be very careful here because it's very difficult to get real news about what's going on in the world, isn't it? Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, I, I remember years, years. You know what I would do when things would get really rocky in my life? From 9 to 12, I'd sit down and listen to Rush because there is a voice that just guides me through the darkness. But what's wrong with, like, okay, Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan. Let's talk about Joe Rogan for a moment. Did anyone see two weeks ago when he talked about how Christians are stupid? Right? And all these people are like, man, I need a prophet. I need a divining spirit. Somebody needs to tell me what's really going on, how we're really going to make it through this. And we sit down and we listen to a false prophet. And you're not at that point just getting news from him. And how, right, how much table fellowship are we going to have with a guy like Joe Rogan? Matt Walsh is another one. He's even a Christian. That's fine. But you know, last week, he, 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 he in reference to Reformation Day, was like, what's wrong with you people? Why would you make such a big deal out of something so stupid and divisive? And I'm like, how much, world, how much do our worldviews really gel here, my friend? How many of us really want to know what's going on? We really want guidance. And so what do we do? We don't turn to necromancers. We go to the Internet, and we say, conjure up for me a spirit who can guide me through this. <laughs> Thomas Sowell even Thomas Sowell is a genius, I love him and I was thinking the other day after about an hour and a half of listening to his audio book and I was like what was it that I read this morning out of the Bible my 15 minute devotional time I can't remember but I'm an hour and a half long into some book on economics from Thomas Sowell who is a genius and I'm like what, what, why did I, what, what am I doing here, where is my information coming from, what is the voice in the midst of all of this that's leading me through this darkness Now, none of us turn to necromancers and diviners in that sense, but we will turn all kinds of things and people into false prophets. In our despair, in our fear, we will turn to all kinds of voices that give us comfort instead of Jesus Christ. And that is what we need to repent of. That is what we need to cease doing. We have a divining spirit. We have the word of God. We have a community in which to interpret it. We have a community, the body of Christ, in which to reside. And right, Where where are we going? I don't know, but we're going there together. And that's a great deal of comfort to me in, in the times that we're in. We need to turn to the guide. We need to turn to the face of the Lord, which is as bright as the sun, in the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of all this fear, and put our attention back on the guide. Because what he wants us to see at this moment is that we have not been listening. Just like he's trying to get Saul to recognize, he wants Saul to see himself. You are not listening to me. And what is going on right now, that's it. It's what's going on in your own heart. It's what you're doing with your own ears. And that is why God is yelling at you now. He's yelling loudly. And he's yelling through all kinds of crazy events and all kinds of weird corners of this country. Right? The Fifth Circuit, right? How many of you now, like myself, yesterday, you heard about the Fifth Circuit Court? Fifth Circuit Court was like, no, I'm sorry, Joe Biden. Mr. President, you can't, you can't tell people to do that. And, and there's this hope welled up within me. Right? And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, my son's reading Zechariah out of the Bible because it's dinner time and we're reading tomorrow's reading. I was like, I wasn't really listening because I got this little flash on Twitter. Right? Oh, thank you. Thank you, divining spirit. <laughs> Thank you, black-robed fifth-circuit court judges. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, Titus, uh, could you go back? Start in verse 1. Right? We, we have got to th- stop and think. Is the Bible shaping our worldview more than the modern paradigm? And, and what are we seeking the guide over the guidance? And what are the voices that are comforting us and that are giving us strength in this, in this difficult time that we're going through? The Lord Jesus has not turned his face away from you. He had, the, God the Father turned his face away from Christ so that in Christ, he would never turn his face away from you. Focus on the guide. Focus. And if you follow him, he will lead you through whatever is coming. Whatever is coming. And I, and I'm, <laughs> there's no more detail than that. And That's why it requires faith. That's why it requires loving and trusting him. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for continually um, teaching us and instructing us. Lord, I pray that we would um, not be cynical, Lord, about the word of God, that even though there are difficult things in it to understand, even though it's so different from the way we think about things, we pray, Lord, that we would be conformed by it into images of of your son, that we would trust him and look to him, the guide, Lord, that we would follow the Lord Jesus through these difficult times, that we would put our faith and our trust in him, and that we would not look away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.